1: This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ, with me, Alison Balance. Cast your mind back to last summer. There was the marine heatwave in the Tasman Sea. In fact, all around New Zealand, sea temperatures were much higher than normal. And with that warmth came thousands of gelatinous blobs. They made it feel as if you were swimming through a lumpy soup. Those blobs were salps. And tonight we're going to find out exactly what a salp is and what it does in the sea. And it turns out that a salp is much more closely related to us than you might have ever assumed. Our guide is Moira Decima, a plankton expert at Niwa. She has recently returned from an expedition on the research ship Tangaroa.
0: This expedition was to study salps, and specifically, the effect of blooms of salps, so salps present in very high concentrations, on uh, biogeochemical flows. So that is on the cycling of certain elements, in particular carbon, but also uh, nitrogen, and you know other elements that are important for life. The other aim of the voyage was to study the effect of these salp blooms on the food web. So traditionally. It was thought that not a whole lot of organisms would eat selp's, and that's probably partially because, you know, selp's are gelatinous and they degrade rapidly. And so, our other methods, our original methods of looking at what fish ate, consisted of going into their stomachs and just seeing what remained there. And so, they're and not bad bits. Rec- are better for that. Exactly, exactly. So, our understanding was definitely biased towards organisms with hard bits.
1: Okay, can I stop you there? Let's, yes. We'll come back to the voyage in a minute. Sure. We better explain what salps
0: are. That's a good point. Salps are gelatinous organisms. They are, um, they're actually closely related to us, at least that's what we believe now. They're urochordates. So they have a primitive spine, but it's not actually a spine. It's a notochord, so it's made out of cartilage. But in evolution, that came first, and then the spine that we have came afterwards. So they're actually of the plankton, They're the ones that are the closest related to us.
1: So they're not jellyfish, which is what I think a lot of us think they are.
0: Absolutely. They're not jellyfish. They will not sting you. And contrary to jellyfish, the jellyfish are actually carnivores, but salps are more on the herbivorous side. So they eat phytoplankton, so they, they have a very different location in the food web.
1: But they're still like jellyfish floating around out at sea, and they look gelatinous.
0: If you look closely at them, they don't look like jellyfish because they don't have that pumping bell. But if you're swimming and you touch something that's jelly-ish, you will jump and think that it's a jellyfish. And and here in New Zealand, it's probably, depending on the time of year, but it's very likely it could be a salp or a chain of salps. I think last summer was a very
1: salpy summer. It was indeed. (laughs) And it made the news. But I remember swimming here in Wellington Harbour, and it was like swimming in, I described it as salp soup to people, so... It was just full of little lumps of jelly.
0: Yes, I remember that too. <laughs> um, it was it was like a jelly soup swimming in it for sure. And you could see the chains. Now, have you
1: got some pictures you can show me? Because I think you're talking about chains there. And I might have to get you to explain the different salp stages because for a, something that looks like a blob of jelly, I get the impression they're surprisingly complicated.
0: That's very true, sure. I'll show you some pictures.
1: <laughs> Which we will put on our web page.
0: So... This first photo is one species that we found a lot, which is um, Salpa thomsoni. And it's amongst the species that have been studied the most, but they've mostly been studied in Antarctica. So we're studying them in waters that are about 10 degrees warmer, um, which for me is pretty impressive that a species can bloom in, in waters that have such different conditions. So... Right here, this image, this is a photo of uh, Salpa Thompsonite oozoid. O-O-Z? O-O-Z. O-I. O-O-I-D. Righty-ho. <laughs> what size is it? That one's about 10 centimeters long. Pretty big. These ones are pretty big. We started our voyage on, in sub-Antarctic waters, and the, so the Salps that we found on that side, this species and another one that I'll talk about later, were all on the relatively big side. And in general, we find colder water species are larger than warmer water species. And that, that holds across a lot of different zooplankton groups. Okay, so we're looking at Salpa Thompsoni oozoid, which is also called the solitary stage and is also called the asexual stage. So it's a solitary stage, so there's only one. It's called the asexual stage because it is, it's not male or female, and it reproduces asexually. So what it does is it produces a chain, and the chain are the organisms that are going to reproduce sexually. So these chains are clones, and the organisms in the chain first start out as females, and then they'll get uh, fertilized, they'll produce an embryo, and then they will become males.
1: And this chain, it looks almost like a necklace of little gelatinous pearls. Yeah,
0: it's very beautiful. (laughs) So these chains right now, they look like these pearls because they're very small. But once they're released by the cell, then they start growing. They typically never achieve the same size as that solitary oozoid, but they can be about you know two-thirds of that size. So they actually grow a whole lot.
1: Now, just before you move on in the picture, there's a couple of darker blobs within that bluey-white gelatinous mass. What's that?
0: So the main one that you see is, is the gut. And that one has brown and it has red and it basically has a lot of the pigmentation of the organisms that they eat. And it's just that the selps see through so you can see its stomach. Exactly, exactly. So the question I got a lot was why can we see the stomach and we can't see any of the other organs? And the reality is that we can see right through the stomach into the stomach contents. Yeah. And then on that specific photo, the other blob that you're seeing is probably, it's on the outside of the self and it's come out of the salp. And it's a fecal pellet, so it's a salt poop, which is one of the one of the main things that we were targeting with this voyage. <laughs> we studied a lot of poop, I guess.
1: So it produces those chains. They're females. They mate. They turn into they males. They turn into males. How does the asexual stage get produced? So the asexual
0: stage is basically the baby of the females when they get fertilized. Okay, it's so it's okay, sort of
1: flicking between a sexual stage and an asexual yeah, stage. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And 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 sex change in the middle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is an embryo inside of an individual of a chain, which are called blastozoids. So we have the oozoids which are the solitary ones, and the blastozoids which are the zoids in a chain. And this photo here you can see this is a very tiny budding oozoid. And you can see the placenta, which is how the mother feeds the embryo. And with time, this one will grow into being another oozoid.
1: So you can see that vague relationship with us when you're talking about placentas and feeding the That's embryo. That's true. And,
0: and you think it has? they have internal fertilization, right? They have a lot of these characteristics that we have, for sure.
1: In terms of this voyage you've just done... You were looking for these out at sea. That sounds like a real needle in a haystack operation to me.
0: It was. The idea of it was the most stressful part of the trip. And I knew it would be a challenge. But our voyage was partitioned into different experimental cycles. So we wanted to target areas that had high salp abundances and areas that had low ones or none so we can contrast them. And then I also wanted to study these patterns both in waters that were influenced um, by sub-Antarctic waters and subtropical waters. There's a number of fish in New Zealand that feed exclusively or primarily on salps. Some of them are Oreos. Others are Warahu, also eat salps. So I targeted an area um, south of Banks Peninsula, which is an important habitat for Oreos. And then we put in a net, and lo and behold, we found some salps. But then we were in only about 600 meters of water, and so I wanted to get more into like 1,000 meters of water. You know, So we transited a bit more we kept finding them, so we're like, okay, we'll start our first experimental cycle here. So it was pretty lucky how quickly we found the salps in sub Antarctic waters. I can't say the same thing for the subtropical waters. We found them, but they were like very few numbers. And then we stopped every 10 nautical miles and did a bongo tow. And then we. So a
1: bongo tow is a kind of plankton net?
0: Yes, a plankton net that is in duplicate. So it kind of looks like you know, your bongo instruments. So we did what we call the Bongathons. <laughs> nice. <laughs> We'd stop every ten nautical miles and do a bongo and process sample. And there were times when we got up to think like three hundred salps in a tow. These ones were only about one centimeter long at most. So they're there, but you know, on, on the warm side I didn't actually find that many.
1: How many species of salps are there? Forty eight. Now do you have some samples here in the invertebrate collection? I do. May we go and have a look? Yes, we may. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> we have come to the formalin lab and formula is a good way to preserve a sample if you want to be able to look at the morphology well later. So we um, we kept a lot of specimens in the freezer that we want to use for bioge- for biochemical analysis, um, for DNA studies, um, and the ones that we kept in formalin were to be able to look at them later.
1: Which brings me to a, an important question. You said there are 48 different species. How on earth do you tell them apart?
0: <laughs> well, so in New Zealand, there's only about 14 of those 48. But the main thing that we look at to tell salps apart are the muscle band patterns. Um And the muscle band patterns are characteristic of every every different species. However, you will have noticed that they're actually, when they're alive, they're actually pretty see-through. And so in order to be able to count the muscle bands and look at where the muscle bands attach with each other, they have to be preserved in something. Um, They could be in formalin, but out at sea, I don't want to be working with formalin. So what I use is vinegar. And vinegar actually denatures the proteins enough so that actually I can see them, and I'm still not working with any kind of strong chemical.
1: There <laughs> we go, Plankton's secret recipe. So let's have a look in some of these jars. Some of them just look like semolina pudding the or small ones, tea or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So the small, all those small but little bubbles, those are chains, and they get broken up when we bring them up with a net. So all oh, the little ones are the chains, and then I think in the back, some of the larger ones which you can see more clearly here. Those are the single, the oozoid organisms. These get to be about uh, 10 or 12 centimeters long, the Salbotomsona oozoids. And And are they one of the bigger species? They are one of the bigger species, but the biggest species is the one that you're looking at right here. Wow. Which is Teta's vagina. And It's a whopper. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) those get up to about 30 centimeters, and we actually measured one at about 32. So we've past the literature limit that we read. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting.
1: who a new world record for salps?
0: Yes. And at the bottom there you can see there's fecal pellets that came out even after we preserved them. And you can see that they're pretty large too. So they also the largest species of salps produces the largest fecal pellet. Not that surprising.
1: <laughs> so let's go back to the voyage. You, you said at the beginning that you were interested in their role in the, in the marine food web. So tell me a bit more about that.
0: Salps are different From from the other zooplankton, because they can eat really small particles, so they can eat types of phytoplankton that the rest of the zooplankton can't eat. So in waters like the subantarctic waters, where there's there's significant iron limitation, the phytoplankton's really small, and so it's not a type of water where you expect a lot of your typical zooplankton like krill copepods, because the transfer of energy is not very efficient. So the very small phytoplankton gets eaten by Microzooplankton, which is unicellular zooplankton, and then copepods and krill can eat that. But the more steps that you add into a food web, kind of the less energy you have to to bring to the top. And salps are different because they have a feeding mesh where they can catch really small particles. So they are in a typical case where you have this large type of zooplankton that can be eaten by fish or other predators, but also has access to the really small phytoplankton at the bottom of the food web.
1: I'm just thinking of they're popping out fecal masses like that all the time. Is that important? Is that helping move nutrients through the water column?
0: Yes. What they're doing is basically sequestering carbon. And they're basically taking carbon from the surface water, which effectively is taking it out of the atmosphere because the surface water is equilibrated with the atmosphere. And because they sink so fast, they don't get eaten on the way down. So it basically moves it to the bottom of the ocean. Um, So... And the area close to the Chatham Rise, it'll feed the benthos. So there's a very rich benthic community in the Chatham Rise, so it feeds them. But then a little bit off of the Chatham Rise, like I mean, as, as you go a bit to the south into even deeper waters, it just sequesters it. And if it goes down below 1,000 meters, it takes it out of contact with the atmosphere for about 1,000 years.
1: So it's an important
0: part of the carbon cycle. It's a very important part of the carbon cycle. And what is interesting here is, I mean, SELPs have been recognized for a long time as being able to have this effect. But because we don't know when they bloom, where they bloom, how often they do it, it's a very hard thing to quantify. But the interesting thing that I found in New Zealand was, it was anecdotal because it was based on a lot of conversations with people, but their blooms are actually not infrequent and so it can be like a significant part of the carbon cycle um, that we could potentially quantify because it seems to happen every year it's not like this isolated anomalous event
1: you've got these frozen samples you've got some informal and what do you what you've got to do for the next few months
0: oh my god so much work (laughs) we brought a lot of samples back um, so a lot of the frozen samples i will dissect the gut out of the salps and analyze them for chlorophyll and also prepare and extract the dna and prepare them for um, sequencing so we can study what exactly they're eating and compare to what's out there so we can kind of follow in more detail the food web from the phytoplankton up to the salps and then the next step in the future will also be to study a little bit more detail who's eating the salps.
1: So Oreo and Waraho, you've mentioned.
0: Yes, so we know those. Oreos, a lot of them are feed exclusively or almost exclusively on salps. And Waraho, I think, are um, when the salps are there that we'll be eating them.
1: Thanks, Mora. Mora Decima is a zooplankton scientist at NIWA. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ on the 20th of December, 2018. All our stories, as well as written features and useful links, are at our web page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. We are also available as a free podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Radio Public. We're taking a four-week summer break, but there will still be some new episodes popping up, featuring science communication students from the University of Otago. If you'd like to stay in touch, we are on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Bye for now. Namahi.